0: SON OF MAN, SON OF GOD. What about these titles? SON OF MAN, SON OF GOD. Is there a difference, and if so, what is it? SON OF MAN is an incredible title and, strangely enough, is the most powerful of the two. And we can see this from Caiaphas' reaction in Matthew 26, 63 to 65, reading from the New International Version. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it's as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said he's spoken blasphemy Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. Caiaphas asks, Are you the Son of God? Jesus replies, You've said it, and what's more you'll see the Son of Man. At which point Caiaphas screams blasphemy and tears his robe. Caiaphas, in other words, goes bare. What a strange reaction, and why did Jesus respond with Son of Man to Caiaphas son of God. To see exactly why we need to go to the book of Daniel and Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 and you'll see why Caiaphas went ballistic. In my vision at night I looked, Daniel speaking, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus was saying, you've said it, I'm the one under whose feet all things will be placed. I am the I am. He was claiming to be God incarnate. No wonder Caiaphas tore his robes. And in John five twenty five to 27 Jesus says this I tell you the truth a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Again, Jesus uses both titles in the same statement. He's referring back to the book of Daniel. And the Jews would have known He's saying, I am the sovereign and only potentate, All dominion is mine, and I am from everlasting to everlasting. My kingdom will never be destroyed. I am God incarnate, in person, alive, in the flesh. Here I am. I am Yahweh, the self-existent one. That's me. So the right to reign is connected with the title Son of Man. We saw earlier in 1 Samuel 8, 5-9 that Israel wanted a king to reign over them. And in 2 Samuel seven, twelve to 14 we see the other title we want, Son of God. Reading from verse 12, 2 Samuel 7 When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for ever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men." Here God is talking to David and telling him about his son Solomon who will become king and he says he shall be a son to me or my son. From that time onwards every king of Israel bore the title son of God. It was one of the titles of the kings of Israel. We'll look at some titles of Jesus as king shortly but this is a title that every king of Israel bore. By using it Jesus proved not only who he was but his authority. It is a claim to be the king of the Jews. So when Jesus went around describing himself as son of man and son of God, he was proclaiming he was the king of Israel and the king of the universe forever and he was revealing it for everyone to see. They knew and they hated him for it. So let's now look at the law of kingship, there is such a thing. In every area of his life Jesus fulfilled the law of kingship and it's vital to our understanding of this subject. You'll find it in Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 to 20. Again I'm using the New American Standard Bible. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from your own countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He shall be with him, and he shall read it all of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law, these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn outside from the commandment to the left or the right, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So let's check a few things out one from your own countrymen. He shall not have a huge army or go to Egypt or Egypt read the world for help. He's not to marry loads of women, I'll explain that in a minute. And he must not increase wealth for himself. He should know the law and keep it. It's quite a task and it's very specific. So did Jesus fulfil all of these criteria? Let's just have a little canter through and see. First thing, from your own countrymen. The king shall be someone from your own countrymen. Put a tick against that one. Jesus is a Jew and has the pedigree to prove it. You can see that in Matthew 1, 1 to 17. comes from David's line. He was selected by God, must be selected by God. The king will be the person that God chooses. How did that work out in Israel's history? need to see this first. Because by having a prophet whom the Lord commissioned to anoint the king and proclaim the king, the selection by God was made evident. And every king of Israel had a prophet. And the prophet was more powerful than the king, because the prophet heard from God and spoke on behalf of God. Let's just check this one out and look for a moment at the selection and anointing of King David by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 12 and 13. New American Standard, Set it up, David anointed. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Selected by God, anointed by the prophet, filled with the Spirit. The titles Messiah, which is the Hebrew or Christ, the Greek, mean the anointed one. The one chosen by God to be king. So how did Jesus fulfill this part? Who was his prophet? Enter his cousin, John the baptizer. No king is legitimate unless a prophet anoints him as we've seen. So if Jesus is going to be a legitimate king fulfilling the requirements of Deuteronomy 17, there has to be a prophet sent from God to show that the king's selection and anointing comes from God. This is why John the Baptist was given such a place of prominence in the Gospels. He was the one chosen to anoint Jesus as King. He's given this position of prominence in order that Jesus will fulfil Deuteronomy 17. And the fulfilment took place at the baptism of Jesus. This was the time when the prophet declared, This is the King. We'll have a look at that in Matthew three, eleven, and then 13 to 16. All the scriptures are New American Standard, unless I tell you otherwise. As for me, I baptise you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, as John the Baptist speaking now, is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism of Jesus, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptised by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering him said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. And then he permitted him. After being baptized Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. So it was at the baptism of Jesus when John said, I can't do this, you are too great. The attestation of the king took place and the anointing was not with oil but with the Holy Spirit himself and the attestation, the verification and confirmation of his kingship came from his Father in heaven. John didn't actually say a word. The Father himself spoke. Matthew 3 16 and 17 After being baptized Jesus came immediately up from the water and behold the heavens were opened He saw the Spirit of God descending on him as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That is the point at which Jesus was attested and proclaimed for all to see that he was indeed the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, and the King of the Jews. And as we've seen before, the Holy Spirit came upon him as a dove because there was no resistance in Jesus. So what else did he have to do? He shall not multiply horses or wives. Egypt bred horses. They were famous for them. If you wanted a good horse, Egypt was the place to go. But this is a euphemism for not seeking outside help don't go down to Egypt. And the scripture for that is Isaiah 31 verse 1. Headed up in my uh, Bible, Woe to those who rely on Egypt. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the holy one of Israel, or seek help from the Lord. So Jesus fulfilled this, and then Zechariah nine nine. Rejoice so greatly, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you; he is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt the foal of a donkey the triumphal entry Matthew 21 5 NIV say to the daughter of Zion see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey the colt the foal of a donkey Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey a donkey has no strength of its own he comes not on a horse a donkey and Hosanna they cry God wanted Israel's king to have an army, but the king was to be dependent on him, not on outside assistance. So the king was forbidden to seek help from other countries in whatever form. God was the one who fought Israel's battles. This is the reason why Jesus always made it clear he did nothing on his own authority, but only what he saw the Father doing. He was fulfilling another part of the law of kingship he was utterly dependent in his humanity upon his father in heaven just as as every king had to be he never used his own wisdom either John 5 verse 30 in the Amplified I'm able to do nothing from myself independently of my own accord but only as I'm taught by God and as I get his orders Even as I hear, I judge. I decide as I'm bidden to decide. As the voice comes to me, so I give a decision. And my judgment is right, just, righteous. Because I do not seek or consult my own will. I have no desire to do what is pleasing to myself, my own aim, my own purpose. But only the will and pleasure of the Father who sent me. But what about this part about multiplying wives? Jesus surely didn't do that but what does it mean exactly? In the ancient world if you were a king and you wanted to make peace with a neighboring country you'd make a treaty with the king of that country to keep the peace. It was common to marry one of the king's daughters you didn't love her you married her to keep it in the family as it were and keep the peace hence solomon ends up with two or three hundred wives because he was a man of peace and that was the way he managed it he married the daughters of the kings surrounding his own country and so kept the peace it's never recorded that he ever went to war It also, incidentally, took him away from God because he followed and worshipped the pagan gods of his wives. And like Deuteronomy warned, his heart was turned away. Interesting, isn't it? So Jesus fulfills that one to the letter. He never made any alliances. He would not have any relationship with things that were wrong. He was there as God's king and God's king only. What about silver and gold then? He had no money. He relied on his father and he tells his disciples to do the same. Luke twenty two thirty five, New American Standard again. And he said to them, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? They said, No, nothing and Matthew seventeen twenty four to 27 and this is a the bit about the tribute money which shows that neither he nor his disciples carried money around with them when they came to Capernaum those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax and he said yes when he came into the house Jesus spoke to him first saying what do you think Simon From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we don't offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. So he fulfills all of this. Deuteronomy seventeen eighteen. he shall live by the law of the Lord Jesus fulfilled this at age 12 he was found in the temple arguing with the priests we find that in Luke two forty six. 46 it's where Jesus has gone missing three days on to the journey mum and dad suddenly realise he isn't there and they go back then after three days Mary a bit irritated with him after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers both listening to them and asking questions. And this that's Deuteronomy 17 fulfilled to the letter Jesus is undisputed King and he is King forever. He has fulfilled as he said to John all righteousness. What he was saying there was we must do everything that is written John exactly as it is written or I cannot be king. The kingmakers, the magi, the angels and shepherds all testified to the fact that he was king. John the Baptist named him, God attested or witnessed to it and the Holy Spirit came upon him. But there was another thing a king had. He had to have a sceptre of power which was uh, like the rod they held. The Queen, doesn't she, has has the scepter when she's at the coronation ceremony. Jesus wasn't given a rod, he was given the power of God upon his life, the real thing. Everything he did proclaimed his kingship through the power that God put within him. Isaiah 42, 1 and 2 Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. Verse 2 means he won't go about saying, I'm the king, come and join me. Jesus was always careful to stop people when they were about to proclaim him or make him king. He'd have nothing to do with it. John six fifteen. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Thus he fulfilled Isaiah 42, 2. And they saw the miracles prophesied, Isaiah 42 6, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So they were crying out, You're the king, and Jesus responds, Don't tell anyone. This is the demonstration of the scepter of power the opening of blind eyes, the setting free of the prisoners. These are the signs, the power signs, that will accompany the king, and they knew it. It was written, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Araba. Here is the sceptre of the king. Signs and wonders, ears opened, eyes opened, lame, dumb, healed. These are the signs that accompany his kingship. Just uh, look um, for a moment at uh, John the Baptist's moment of questioning in Matthew 11 where he says, do we look for someone else? What's going on here? Matthew 11, 2-5 Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? Jesus answered him and said, Go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. John is questioning here whether Jesus is who he thought he was. John was expecting the king all right but the king he was expecting was going to release the Jews from Roman occupation so he's saying get with the program Jesus where's the liberation? And Jesus replies with Isaiah 35 the sceptre of power of the King. He doesn't say he's king. The only time he did that was before Caiaphas as we saw earlier. He simply points to the evidence. He will not raise his voice in the street. He isn't trying to get a following. The signs that I perform are the testimony that I am the one. The priests knew who he was, they'd never had to put Leviticus 14 into operation before because a Jew had never been healed of leprosy, they'd never had to do it. I won't stop now but you can see it for yourself, it makes really interesting reading. There is a, a ritual that they need to go through when someone presents themselves as having been healed by lepros- from leprosy and the only person who'd been healed of leprosy was Naaman the Syrian and the priests knew it every one of those priests knew that Jesus was king everything he did was filled with kingship they knew it when they put him on the cross and the people knew it luke 4:33 and 35 to 35 In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The people knew, the priests knew, and the demons knew. Let's see some other things about kingship. We're most blessed because we have a monarchy, a royal family, and we can look at, uh, to see patterns or types that relate well to Jesus' kingship. First one is names. You'll have noticed in the Old Testament that kings' names were often changed when they came to the throne. In our own country, King George VI's real name was Bertram. He was known as Bertie in the family. But when he ascended to the throne, he became George VI. He wasn't called King Bertie. In the ancient world, every king had two names. They had a personal name and they had a royal name. Uh, 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet and he named him Jedediah for the Lord's sake. Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. So Solomon had two names. A few more for you to look up for yourself. 2 Kings uh, twenty three thirty four, and Pharaoh Necho turns his name from Eliakim to Jehoiakim. 2 Kings twenty four seventeen. And the king of Babylon makes Mataniah Jeconiah's uncle king in his stead and changes his name to Zedekiah. And of course the classic one, the king of Babylon, renames Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So name changing was quite common in the ancient world. The important thing for us in this study is the question, does Jesus have two names, and if so, where do we see this? Mary and Joseph were told to call his name Jesus because he was Yeshua, save, his people from their sin. Play on words. But Revelation 19, 11 and 12 shows us he has a new kingly name that no one but he knows. Revelation 19, 11 and 12. And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. So here's Jesus' kingly name which is kept secret from us at the moment. And we're kings. Jesus has made us both kings and priests and it's incorrect to refer to us as princes or princesses. A king may have sons and daughters who have that title but we are children heirs of the king of kings and that makes us kings not princes or princesses. Revelation 5 verse 10. You have made them, that's us, to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth." It's time we understood our royal inheritance beloved. We are not ordinary people. We will rule and reign upon the earth during the millennium and this time now is our training ground. Don't let us waste the time which we've been given. And do we have a new name? Yes, indeed we do. Revelation two seventeen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. Thou will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Such promises! The white stone, incidentally, means that you have been found not guilty. There's literally no charge to answer because Jesus has taken the punishment for your crimes. In the ancient world again, when you were doing trial, the jurors would be given two stones, one white and one black. And by this they would vote for or against you at the end of the trial. Jesus has voted for you. There is no charge to answer. You go free, White Stone. hallelujah. So you too, as a king, have a new name waiting for you. Lastly then, titles. If you know much about the monarchy, you'll know that the present queen holds many titles. She used to have the title Empress of India. I'm not sure if she still is this. Queen of Great Britain and Ireland, and these titles describe either their do, the Queen's dominion or something about their character. Our present Queen has one, it's called Defender of the Faith, and it describes one of her roles. If you go into Wikipedia, you'll see almost pages of it, and part of it, it says this. Her Majesty Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, Ireland and the British Dominions beyond the seas, Queen. Defender of the Faith, Duchess of Edinburgh, Countess of Merioneth, Baroness Greenwich, Duke of Lancaster, Lord of Man, and so on. But what we're interested in are the titles of our King, Revelation 19, 11 and 13 to 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Today Jesus is enthroned in the heavens. Today we're in days of grace. Today we know him as king but no one else knows him as king. But the day is coming when the next phase will begin. He will catch the bride up to be with him and we shall view everything from a heavenly perspective. He shall rule. He shall tread the winepress of the wrath of God. He shall put an end to the beast and the political system which is to come during the Great Tribulation. He shall reign victoriously the blessed and only potentate and every eye will see him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Our future beloved is not only fantastic but it is assured. Everything will be under his dominion. All things will be made new glory to his name. Revelation 21 5 to 6 And he who sits on the throne said behold i'm making all things new and he said write for these words are faithful and true then he said to me it is done i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end i will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost amen nevertheless come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Thanks for listening. It's been a marathon. I do hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed preparing it. May God bless you as he blesses his word to you.